All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open God's word together this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful for all that you have given us and all that you have revealed to us in your word. We know that your word is from you. It is the mind of Christ. It is breathed out by you, and the writing process was overseen by God the Holy Spirit so that what is recorded was without error. Father, we know that your word is sufficient as your grace is sufficient and as Christ's work on the cross is sufficient. That, it, that means that it is enough. It is more than enough. It is all that is required in order to meet the need. And the need began with our need for salvation and then our need for spiritual growth and our need for provisions to face the world, to face the devil, to face our own sin natures. Father, we're thankful for the grace that you have given us, and we pray that as we study today, our faith might be strengthened, our spiritual life advanced, and we might come to understand more fully all that has been provided for us and the certainty of our faith, the certainty of the resurrection, and the significance of that in our lives. And we pray pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You can begin by opening your Bibles to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. This morning, we're going to finish the last six stages in the crucifixion. That is a fitting prelude to understanding the reality of the resurrection, which is the second part of the message, as we look at what happened on that day. As I have been studying over the past several weeks related to these events that occurred between Jesus uh, being found guilty or um, pronounced guilty by Pilate and sent to be crucified, and the final event, which is the sealing of the tomb, I've gone on from that to examine the significance of these last details along with what we're told about the resurrection in the four Gospels. And there's a lot here. This is not a one-shot Easter or Resurrection Day message. This is the beginning of probably three or four weeks of looking through what is what is told to us and what has been revealed to us, not only in terms of the events, that's the first thing we need to do, which is the focus this morning, is what happened on that first resurrection day. But then we need to move beyond all of that to the evidence that that provides, and then we need to understand the significance, just as we did with the death of Christ, understand the significance and the importance 
of the resurrection. So that will probably take us through uh, most of this month. So we're beginning where we stopped last time to look at the final six stages of the crucifixion. The first five stages were the procession from the Praetorium to Golgotha. The second stage was the first three hours on the cross from 9 a.m. to noon, where the wrath of man was hurled at the Savior as he hung on the cross, as they reviled him and ridiculed him and blasphemed him. But his response again and again during that time was one of grace and one of forgiveness. He demonstrated a relaxed mental attitude. He was calm. He wasn't panicky. And he knew why he was there. Then during the second three hours, the wrath of God, that is the justice of God, is poured out on the Lord Jesus Christ as he bears the sins of the world and is judicially separated from the Father. It is during those three hours that our sins, the sins of every human being, the sins of the world, were paid for through a substitutionary death on the cross. It involves redemption. It involves uh, the canceling of sin. It involves forgiveness, and it involves the satisfaction of God's righteousness. Then you have his physical death at stage 25, followed by the confirming signs that we talked about last time. There's the earthquake. There is the uh, rocks are split. There's the uh, dead, some of the dead that were raised from the dead. And then after his resurrection, they go out into the streets of Jerusalem and proclaim the truth of his, of his death. That's the core of what we studied last time. And then this time we're looking at the burial of our Lord, stages 31 to 36. So the first thing that happens, he's still on the cross. He has died physically, but they're not sure that he has died physically because it was rather short. Sometimes they would cause a crucifixion to stretch out for, uh, if they could, a couple of days. But they've got a time crunch here because as we read in John 19.31, this was the preparation day. Now there's a lot of discussion about what that means, but in Jewish literature, there's no discussion. In Jewish literature, this is not the preparation day for the Passover because the Passover has, has already begun in the 14th of Nisan is started the night before. That's when the disciples had their Pesach meal, their Seder. It extends through that day. It's when they have the morning sacrifice in preparation for the eating of the meal between the two evenings, the evening of the night before, Thursday night, and this would be Friday night. And at dusk, they will eat the Seder meal. At dusk, this begins the next day, which is the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That makes that Shabbat, that Saturday, a high Sabbath. And the term preparation day is always used in Jewish literature to refer exclusively to the preparation for the Passover. That's, I mean, excuse me, for the preparation for the Sabbath not the Passover. 
That is one reason we know that it couldn't be a Wednesday or a Thursday. That question always comes up, and I've spent a lot of years in my life, let's say decades, trying to demonstrate that it was not on a Friday. But again and again, the evidence just kept coming back that you just don't have enough time in the week to fit the chronology. The terminology doesn't fit. Uh, everybody wants to jump to Jesus' statement in Matthew 12 that as um, Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, they say that equals 72 hours. But again and again and again, Jesus says he will rise on the third day. That's not 72 hours. That's less than 72 hours. There's Old Testament passages that use the phrase three days and three nights or so many days and so many nights as a um, to refer to a period of time that includes any part of those days. Those of you who have been with me long enough, you remember when we went through Kings several years ago, and you have all of these different numbers related to the length of the reigns. And the big conundrum chronologically there is that at different times in different uh, under different um, kings. And whether you were in the north or in the south, they counted the years differently. Now, you and I are the product of 2,000 years of Western civilization and Roman and Greek thinking, and we count differently than the way the Jews counted. When, and, and many in the ancient world, you have to look at the ancient Near East to determine how they counted. Some kings, if you became king on December the 31st, 2017... 2017 is your first year, even though you were only king for one day. And the previous king, if he died on uh, at the end of the year, or even if he had died at the first of the year, that, he, that whole year is counted as his year. So that causes an overlap. So 2017 would count as a year for the previous king and would count as a year of the current king. Then if you died... On January the 1st of 2019, that would count as a full year. So 2017 would be a year, 2018 would be a year, 2019 would be a year, even though it was only 367 days. Now, that's also how they counted days. In the Talmud, it says any part of a day is counted as a full day, even if it's only an hour. And I can go on with more and more evidence, but that's not the point this morning. So it's the preparation day for the Sabbath, and they have to get the bodies down off of the crosses before the sun goes down because they have to be ready for the Sabbath. And because it's a high Sabbath, it's a high day, they're going to be need to be back in their homes in order to observe the Seder and the Passover meal. So they ask Pilate if their legs can be broken. Now, Jesus has his feet nailed to the cross. We don't know precisely how they did it. The one piece of evidence that we use, because there's an ankle bone that was uh, discovered in one of the crypts in, in Jerusalem that had a nail that went through the bone, and they couldn't extract it. It had just gotten caught into the, the sinews and the bone itself. And it indicated that each foot was on each side of the stipes, that vertical piece, and then the, the nail was was driven in from each side. Can you imagine how that felt? 
Yet, Jesus didn't scream out. You and I would have probably passed out but and screamed first, but he did not. And so he's, he's, his feet are nailed to the cross that way. The, the others may not have had their feet nailed. They had, um, it was typical for uh, there to be a small uh, piece of wood placed on the stipes, which would give them just a, a little bit of purchase room to push themselves up and relieve the pressure against their diaphragm. So th- that was probably true of the, of the, um, of the two uh, thieves. And so they asked Pilate to break their legs. Then they can't push themselves up. They're just going to be hanging where all of their um, internal organs are being pushed up against their diaphragm, and they'll be unable to breathe, and they will suffocate quickly. So they're going to break their legs, but Jesus' legs were not broken because they came to him, and he was already dead. So we read in verse 32, Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. Why did he do that? He did that to make sure he was dead because it appeared that Jesus had already died. And so this uh, soldier takes a spear and he drives it up under the rib cage, up towards the heart. And immediately, John observes from a phenomenological viewpoint, that means what it looked like to him. He's not giving a medical report. He says that blood and water came out. Now, there are different studies that have been done today by medical professionals, by doctors who have observed that if a person is crucified and is in this position, that what would happen is the blood would collect uh, above the diaphragm and it would separate out into uh, red blood cells and also uh, lymph or what would appear to be a clear or clearer fluid. And so this, the fact that it had separated into these different properties would indicate that death had already occurred. So when the when John observes this, he just notes what he sees, that it looks like blood and water are, are coming out. But what that tells us is that Jesus has already died physically. The fact that no bones were broken is a fulfillment of prophecy. It is pictured in typology because the legs of the lamb, the Passover lamb, were not to be broken. And it is foretold specifically that no bones of him were broken. And so John affirms this in verse 35 and says, He who has seen has testified, his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. See, that's the issue we'll see several times here, is the issue in salvation is to believe that this is true. Not to, it's not emotion. Belief is a function of the mind. It's a function of the brain. It's to look at a set of facts and say, that's true. When you say that's true, you are assenting to its veracity that it is real, and that is evidence that you believe it. And so this is what John is saying, that salvation is by faith. It's by believing. It's not by works. It's not by anything else. Over 95 times in the Gospel of John, John uses this term without qualification to express the condition for salvation. He never says truly believe, sincerely believe, genuinely believe, 
it's always just believe because you either believe or you don't. It's a function of the mind, and instantly when you believe, God the Father knows whether you believe or not. And when you believe, when you say in your in your heart, in your mind, in the center of your being that that's true, that instant God regenerates you, declares you just, you are saved. And it is by faith alone in Christ alone. And then John 19.36, we read, For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled, that not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced, and that's from Zechariah 12.10. So you have two prophecies that are fulfilled here on the cross, that he is pierced and that he is, uh, none of his bones are broken. Then we come to the 32nd stage, and this is when the Joseph of Arimathea will request his body that it come down from that it be brought down from the cross. And we're told in Matthew twenty seven, uh, fifty seven that when evening had come there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Christ. So he is a prominent council member. We learn that from Mark fifteen forty three that he was waiting for the kingdom of God, as were the other disciples. And we also learn that he was a man who was a, we learn from John, that he was a secret disciple. So he came, he took courage, he went into Pilate, he's going to blow his cover because he and Nicodemus were both disciples, but they were secret disciples, they were believers. And so he came to Pilate, and we're told in verse 44 that he, when he asked for the body, Pilate was amazed that he was already dead. So he has to have confirming testimony that Jesus has already died. Now, the reason this is important is because if resurrection of Christ is the linchpin, the chief cornerstone, the foundation of our faith, and without it, we are fools, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, then this is an attack point for those who reject Christianity. How do you know Jesus died? Well, he did. if he didn't die, then he just somehow uh, regained consciousness and, and recovered and was uh, simply resuscitated but without any physical death. And so Pilate calls a centurion who's in command of the guard detail and the crucifixion detail, uh, and summons him to see if he's dead. Now, this man would know, because this man had witnessed numerous crucifixions, and he had not only the experience to know, but he was also there when the soldier pierced Jesus' side with the spear. So he's seen the physical evidence that Jesus is dead. And so when the centurion confirmed that, yes, he was dead, then Pilate granted the body to Joseph. In Luke 23, we're told that uh, Joseph was a council member. That means he was a member of the Sanhedrin. He's called a good and just man, and that he had not consented to their decision and deed. Neither he nor jo- uh, Joseph, I mean, excuse me, Nicodemus, had consented to that, and we're told again that he was waiting for the kingdom of God. He knew he was a believer in what his future destiny was. And then John 19.38 tells us that he not only was he a disciple of Jesus, he's more than a believer. A disciple is someone who's become a believer and then wants to live and learn as in serving Christ through his life. So Joseph gets the body. 
What we learn about Joseph is that he's a rich man from Arimathea, so his grave that he will put Jesus in is a rich man's grave, and that um, that fulfills prophecy from Isaiah chapter 53. He's a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. He didn't consent to the Sanhedrin's decision. He's a good and just man. He is personally observant of the law, but he is a believer as well and a disciple of Jesus Christ. That brings us to the 33rd stage. And in the 33rd stage, they take Jesus' body down from the grave. And what we simply read at the beginning of Matthew 27:59 and Luke 23:53 is that the body was taken down from the from the cross. The next thing that happens in the 34th stage is the burial of Jesus. He's wrapped in a clean linen cloth. And then uh, we're told in Matthew, I mean, excuse me, in Mark 15, 46, that Joseph had bought fine linen. He took him down and wrapped him in the linen, and he laid him out in a tomb which had been hewn out of rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. Now, something that we see here is that in this process, Joseph has gone to Pilate. He's requested the body. Then on the way to the cross, he stops and he buys linen, and then he goes to the cross. Now, some have argued that that is one reason why you have to have a crucifixion on Wednesday. You didn't have enough time for Joseph to go back and forth and run all over Jerusalem to buy all these things, but you did because, it, as I pointed out, from the praetorium to the to Golgotha was only about 100 to 150 yards at the most. There, w- there could have been shops along the way, but the whole area of this part of Jerusalem was not that large, so it would not have taken him much time to have secured this on the way to the cross to prepare the body for burial. He lays him in a tomb, and this tomb is very close, as we'll see, to the site of the crucifixion. It is a tomb that no one had ever lain in before. Now, that's one of the problems with the area around the so-called garden tomb, which is on to the north of the city. That was, uh, uh, among many other things, it was never thought of as a site for the crucifixion until Charles Gordon came along in the 1880s. And the reason he said that was because he thought that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre couldn't be the site because it was inside the wall and Jesus was crucified outside the wall. But since then, we've discovered another wall that was uh, next to or near the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, but it was to the east, making Golgotha and the church site of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre outside the wall at that time. The wall that we knew up until about... 40 years ago, was a wall that uh, was built in 40 A.D., some seven years after the crucifixion. Now, also, the tombs that surround the area where the garden tomb is located are, are all first temple period tombs. That means they're all, they all date to around 600 to 700 uh, B.C., uh, so that doesn't fit the scenario of a tomb here that no one had ever laid in before. So because this tomb at the garden tomb has no body in it, doesn't mean no one had ever laid there. They, as Jerusalem expanded, they typically would have to move all of the bodies out of the graveyards to another site to get them outside of the boundaries of the city. 
So we learn that it's a new tomb, and we learn in John 19.41, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there's a garden right there. And that's what we learn is that this had been this site where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is located, that that had been a quarry. But the rock there wasn't good enough for the construction of the and the reconstruction uh, uh, that, that Herod was carrying out on the Temple Mount. It was not stable enough, so it was abandoned. And when that was abandoned, then there were many uh, caves in that area, and so it became a graveyard, and they decorated it with flowers and made it a comfortable place to go and be near the graves or tombs of your loved ones. And so this was, there are many graves, I'll show you a couple of pictures in a minute, because if you go into the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, you, you look about 30 feet to your right, and that's where that rock wall for Golgotha is located. And you move and you go about 60 feet to your left, and that's where the edicule is located today, which is this sort of like a tent that's constructed over the site of where Jesus' tomb had been located. They are very close together. And then if you go just behind the edicule and go through a couple of uh, low-hanging, uh, low doors there, or, or just they're just cut away in the rock, you can go into a small room and you can see all these little tombs that were located there. So it, it fits the site. So Jesus it goes into an unused tomb that was the tomb for a rich man. And this is emphasized in Isaiah chapter uh, 53. Then we come to stage 35. Stage 35, there's a preparation for the embalming. This is described in Matthew 27, 61, Mark 15, 47, and Luke 23, 55. And there they are witnesses. Mary Magdalene is there, the other Mary, that's the one who's the mother of James and Joseph, and as in, identified in Mark 15, 47, and these are among other women who came from Galilee, and they're observing the preparation of the body, then taking that body, all of those 60 or 70 feet, to the tomb of, that belonged to Joseph of Arimathea, and then placing the body into the tomb. So they're watching. They're witnesses to his death. They're witnesses to his burial. And they stay there until... They have to leave, and they have to leave as sunset approaches and Passover approaches, then they will, uh, they will leave. Now, one of the things that they don't observe there is the ceiling of the tomb. This is the 36th stage, and what happens in the 36th stage is that we're told in Matthew 27.62 that the next morning, Matthew 27.62 says, on the next day, which followed the day of preparation. So Friday's the day of preparation. The next day is Saturday. So this is the next day. They, The chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, and they said, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. See, they say after three days. And what you discover is that these phrases, on the third day, the third day, after three days, 
these prepositions can become interchangeable. We think with the Western mindset that that always means the same. But people in other languages have a fluidity, we do too, among the, the meaning of prepositions where they overlap. I have made a number of friends in, in Ukraine over the years, and what I have noticed when I say I will meet you someplace in 30 minutes, they will say I will be there after 30 minutes. They are saying the same thing I'm saying. I'm saying I will be there in 30 minutes, and for them, the way they translate, the way they think, they always use the phrase after, but they mean the same thing that they'll be there in exactly 30 minutes. So this phrase, after three days and on three days, if you work it out, it's it's uh, synonymous. So they say to Pilate, after three days I will rise. Therefore command that the tomb be made secret, uh, uh, be secure until the third day. Notice, first they said after three days, then they said until the third day. As far as they're concerned, they're saying the same thing. Those are synonymous prepositional phrases in their thinking, and you can demonstrate that through a lot of uh, various uh, comparisons and word studies. So the reason they wanted secure is lest the disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people that he's risen from the dead, so the last deception will be worse than the first. How prophetic they are without knowing it. They are. They realize that if this happens, it will really be tough for them to overcome a belief that he has risen from the dead. And so Pilate came, gave them a guard who went away to make it secure as they could. Now, that guard is a Roman guard that would have consisted of at least 16, maybe 20. It could. Some people think it's even more than that. But it was at least uh, 16 soldiers who would be punished by death if anything happened on their watch. They're told to make it secure, and they do this by sealing the stone. Same word that's used for the sealing of the spirit. It is the idea of marking it in such a way that that seal cannot be broken and they could watch it and secure it. So here's one artist's conception where they had a, a rope or stretched across the, the stone and then secured in the middle with a, a vertical piece of rope that was sealed. Here is another picture of the guard and the sealing of the tomb. So this is a way to secure it to show that that there was no way that he could, Jesus could come out. In fact, the large rock that is rolled in front of the, of the tomb, as it's pictured there, is secured in place by a smaller rock, therefore, so that it can't be moved. If you were on the inside, you couldn't push and roll the stone out of the way because it's secured by this smaller stone, and you'd have to be able to overcome that. Then, of course, if you've lost all this blood and you've been beaten and tortured and gone through crucifixion, you really wouldn't have the strength to do that. So so you just can't get away with saying that Jesus just passed out on the cross or, or something like that. And with this guard detail surrounding it, you know that, that nobody could have gone there and stolen the body. So Pilate gives them a guard. He, the guard secures it. It's a Roman guard that he provides for them, 
and he commands that it be secured as much as possible. So, in Matthew 28, we're told that after the resurrection, that uh, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened, and so the Sanhedrin got together, and they paid them off, they bribed them to tell that the body had been stolen away by his disciples, and then they would cover for them uh, if it came to the governor's ears or, or uh, to the um, ears of Pilate so that they would not be executed. So this is the sealing of the tomb. We have seen that, that um, it's secure. Jesus died, certainly died physically and that he was buried There were witnesses, and as we'll see now as we continue into what happens on the next day, in fact, later that Saturday after Shabbat ended, that there were witnesses all along the way to the security of the tomb. So at this point, let me show you a couple of pictures. Here are some uh, first century tombs. Also, this is located up near the Hebrew University uh, in Jerusalem. This is one that's located near the King David Hotel, and it really does show that evidence of that. Here you have the stone that would be rolled into behind this arch, so that arch as well as a, a channel that's cut into the rock would secure it, so it would make it very difficult to move the stone. Here we have uh, Wayne Howe standing there uh, giving a little perspective on how high that uh, entryway arch is. And in this picture, you can see that the uh, this channel that's cut, the stone would roll in front of it, and it would be almost impossible to move that out of the way. The scripture says it was an extremely large stone. This is a picture of the entry to the garden tomb, And I only use this not because I think that's where Jesus was buried, but to give you an idea of what the interior looked like. It looks, the body, you'd have one place for a body on the left and another place for a body on the right. The little entry area where I'm standing as I take the picture is would be the weeping room, and then the bodies would be laid there. So you have to uh, go in. It's a pretty low doorway you have to bend over to go in and to and to look inside now this is what's called the edicule this was a an 18th century shrine that was built over the site of the uh, the burial site of our lord where his tomb was so why don't we see a tomb well that's because in the ninth uh, or 10th century the muslim ruler of jerusalem had everything destroyed so that he just took the mountain down, the tomb down to the ground so there would be no empty tomb left. There would be no tomb of Jesus left. And if you remember the first crusade, one of the reasons for the first crusade was because uh, Christian pilgrims who were going to Jerusalem were being attacked along the way. And in Jerusalem, the holy Christian sites were being uh, defaced and destroyed by the Muslims. That's what they do. It's like when they uh, blew up a Buddhist uh, statue uh, several years ago in, uh, I think it was in Afghanistan. So this is the edicule which marks the spot, and if you go behind the edicule, 
These are some of the first century tombs that are located there. So this demonstrates that this was indeed a burial site in the first century. So the Sabbath passes. When does the Sabbath end? I'm going to challenge your thinking here. When does the Sabbath end? The Sabbath ends at sundown on Saturday. Remember that. We're talking Jewish time. We're not talking Roman time. If you're talking Roman time, Sabbath would not end until midnight. But we're not talking Roman time. We're talking Jewish time. Matthew is writing to Jews, and Mark is writing from a Jewish perspective as well, describing what happens. And in Mark 16.1, we read, Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices. This is not early the next morning. When the Sabbath passed, which that year was about 6 p.m. on April the the uh, 4th, which would have been the date of Shabbat. Christ was crucified on the 3rd, Friday, the Shabbat was the 5th, and he's resurrected, excuse me, Saturday's the 4th, and he's resurrected on the 5th of April. And on, according to our own time, now taking out daylight savings time, that would have been about right at 7 p, uh, or excuse me, 6 p.m. on April the 4th. You have to take that out. I, I uh, did a search on it in Jerusalem when sunset would be, and it would be 7 p.m. today, but they're in daylight savings time, so you have to take that hour out. So it's at 6 p.m., and after that, the shops would open. According to uh, Jewish reckoning, they would have to see three stars in the skies. And this is what Arnold Fruchtenbaum says about this. However, in a Jewish context, the word dawn meant the beginning of the new day. And for Jews, the new day began after sunset, when three stars were visible in the night sky. Since Matthew was addressing Jews, dawn toward the first day of the week meant late Saturday afternoon or early evening, shortly before sundown. The Greek text literally literally reads, late of the Sabbath or in the lighting to one of the Sabbath. That is the idea of as, as it's getting ready to make that uh, progress from the Sabbath to the day after, which is about 7 o'clock at night. So that's the time that we're talking about. And once you could see those three stars in the sky and and Shabbat is over, then the shops could open. And that's what's happening here. They, they don't go to get up early, early in the morning and go buy spices. So Mark says, when Shabbat was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices that they might come and anoint him. So they're getting ready for the next day. Matthew says, after the Sabbath, same thing as the Sabbath ended on Saturday evening, as the first day of the week began to dawn, so that is as it begins, which is about 7 o'clock on Saturday night, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. So they're, they, they're checking on They're grieving. They want to go to the tomb. All of this uh, is, is taking place on Saturday evening. So then the what we see is a series of events, and I want to break this down for you. I think um, I've done a lot of work on this. Most commentators never even think about the fact that this is a Hebrew time scale and that it's 
not on Roman time. So it, it gets quite interesting searching things. But A.T. Robertson, who wrote the Harmony for the Gospels, which he's done, a, did a quite an excellent job with. He was a well-known Southern Baptist scholar, published an enormous Greek grammar that is about four inches thick. And he breaks this down in his commentary on Matthew. And he says, Matthew 28.1 tells us that Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, went to the tomb. They had seen the burial site Friday evening. They rested and grieved on Saturday. Then they go to the tomb. The second thing that he says is that from there they went to the market and they bought spices. I didn't create a slide for point two. Then, if you look at Matthew, Matthew reads in the English as if verse two and the earthquake takes place immediately after verse one. But in the Greek, there's no chronological connection there. So he's just telling us that Mary who had gone to the tomb and, pro- and it would be the night before. And then he says, because it happened sometime during the night when nobody's there, and behold, there was a great earthquake. So this is shifting gears to explain what happens overnight. There was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. So here's our first angel. This is the third event. If I can make it, I've got 19. You don't think I can make it in 20 minutes, do you? <laughs> so what happens is the, the stone is rolled out of the way by an angel, not by the earthquake. And then the guards see this, and they just pass out. So we're, the angel is described. This is the first angel. There's going to be two other angels. I think in total we have three angels here. So the stone is moved, and the guards pass out. Fourth, the women arrive at the tomb early. In the Greek, it says, in the deepness of the dawn. So that's before daylight even breaks, before you have false dawn and before you have astronomical dawn. Early the next morning, and the next morning... Uh, sunrise would have been five, about 5.17 in the morning if, if things are about the same. So it's very early. So they're getting there probably around uh, 4.30 or so in, in the morning on Sunday. And we have Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph. No others are mentioned. Uh, Mark, though, in, in, no others are mentioned in Matthew. Mark includes Salome the mother of James and John, along with them. That doesn't mean there weren't any others, but those are the ones that are named. So Mark 16 talks about what happened the night before when they bought spices, and then 16.2, very early in the morning, uh, very in the deep dawn of the morning, literally on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. So it's it's very early. And... Along the way, Mark alone records that they have a conversation because they are concerned about being able to move this stone. This thing's pretty heavy. How can we move it? And apparently from what Mark reports, because he doesn't say anything about the guard or the seal, is they may not be uh, aware of the guard or the seal, or they're just more concerned about moving, moving the tomb. When they arrive, this is point number six, when they arrive, they discover that the stone has been rolled away. 
So Mark 16.4 says, But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. Now at this point in Matthew, the angel who's sitting on the stone makes an, a statement to the women. Now if that statement occurred and Mary Magdalene is with them, then what happens in Mark and I mean in Luke and in John doesn't make sense. So apparently what happens is that as soon as they, she sees that the, that the stone's back and she, and, and the, she assumes the tomb's empty and they've stolen the body, Mary Magdalene ran off to talk to John and Peter, and that's what happens in John 19. Because when she gets there, she says, the tomb's empty, they've stolen the body, we don't know what they did with it. So if, so you've got to understand that in the telling of these stories, some of the other writers are collapsing events, they're giving summary statements, and they're telling from different perspectives. So, so they were getting their information from different people. But you can all put it, you can put it all together with, without a problem. So after this sixth event, what happens is that Mary's going to leave. That's what uh, I have for point seven is John states that Mary Magdalene saw the stone was taken away and ran to tell the other disciples. So she doesn't know that he's risen yet. She knows nothing else. She just knows that the body's gone. Uh, the tomb's open. The body must be gone. And what did they do with it? And she's sort of in a panic mode. From the eighth thing is that at that point of the story, if you look at John 19, there is a, what appears to be a conflict with the other gospel accounts. John 9, uh, excuse me, John 20. She ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth. They took off running immediately. They don't hear anything more. They just take off. And then you skip down to verse 11 in John 20 and it says but Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping and so as she wept she stooped and looked into the tomb so she still doesn't know that Jesus has risen by the time you get to verse 11 and so how do you put this together and and I've spent hours reading different commentaries and there was one that summarized four different positions and after I got through reading those four different positions I was more confused than anything and I sat down with the text and just went through this step by step on my own and put this order together. And it makes more sense to me uh, that um, that this is at least closer to being right. Everybody seems to throw up their hands at one point or another and say it's impossible. So what we see first of all, though, is John is writing, and so he follows the storyline of what happens to him and Peter because before he goes back to Mary Magdalene because he's he wants to get his testimony out there because he's the first one who believes in the resurrection, as we'll see. So he wants to drive that point home, and then he'll come back to pick up the storyline with Mary Magdalene. So the, my ninth point is Mary returns to the tomb separate from John and Peter, and she still doesn't know that the Lord is risen. She's stand, By verse 11, she's standing outside the tomb weeping and is completely unaware of what has happened. We'll come back and pick that thread up uh, a little later. On the tenth point, Matthew tells us that when the women approach the tomb, the angel tells them that Jesus had risen 
and then to come into the tomb to see where he had been laid. Okay, remember, you've got these women, at least three, and they're coming to the tomb. They see the stone rolled back. Mary immediately runs to tell John and Peter before she finds any out any more information. And the other women stay there, and so the angel tells them that Jesus has risen. Mary missed that piece of information, obviously, because in John John 20, 11, she's weeping at the tomb. She still doesn't know it. So they hear the message from the angel who's sitting on the rock. Jesus had risen. He invites them to come into the tomb to see where the body, where Jesus' body had been laid, and then he tells them to go tell the disciples that he is risen. This is seen in Matthew 28, 5 to 7. That's the angel sitting on the stone. But Mark has a slightly different perspective. Mark tells us what happens when they looked into the tomb. See, Matthew, Matthew, Matthew's angel says, look in the tomb, but he doesn't tell us what happened when they look in the tomb. Mark's account tells us what happens when they looked in the tomb. There was a, they see another angel who repeats what the first one said and then instructs them to tell the disciples. But it's not the same angel because this one is inside the tomb. So Mark 16.5 says, In entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side. Later we'll see one at the head and one at the feet. I think one of those two is the same one as this one. But it could have been three different ones. I don't know. Uh, but probably only two. Mark 16, 6, he says something very similar to them. Remember, when you're in a state of shock and you've never heard of anybody, of course, they had seen Lazarus and they had seen Jairus' daughter raised from the dead. But how can they fathom this, that he's risen from the dead? So they need to hear the message two or three times before it starts to sink in. You and I, made it, we might need to hear it eight or nine times before it sinks sunk in. So this angel says he's risen, he's not here, see the place where they laid him. The emphasis on empirical data here. This isn't some mystical event where they just think that this must have happened. It's not some psychological response to the trauma. It is hard and fast evidence. They can see the uh, the grave clothes that are lying there in place as if the body just dematerialized in place. The twelfth thing is that Luke adds another aspect regarding their entry into the tomb, but he tells of two angels instead of just one. This isn't a contradiction, but he's just adding another angel that was not seen or was or Mark just left it out. This often happens in these accounts where one tells only part of the story, another one tells something else. Luke twenty four three, then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. And they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth. And they said to them, this is in addition to what the angel in Mark had said, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee. And at this point, they are going to uh, remind them of the many prophecies that Jesus made in telling them that he it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem, that he was going to suffer and he was going to die, and he was going to rise on the third day. So I can never remember how 
oh, okay, I've got to figure it out now. It's a new program, new advances. Okay. Number 13, in addition to telling the women that Jesus is risen, they add a reminder about Jesus' own prophecy about his resurrection. And I'll just give you the Matthew references. In Matthew 12.40, Matthew 12.40, Matthew 16.21, Matthew 17.22-23, and Matthew 20.18-19 are just four places where Jesus predicted the, his resurrection. There are at least four. Uh, the other synoptics have additional places as well. So this was something they should have learned. In Luke um, 24, 5 through 8, as we read here, as they were, <clears throat> after they bowed down, they said this. Uh, <clears throat> they reminded them what Jesus said, verses 7 and 8, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. Then they remember these words. Fourteenth stage, the women return to tell the disciples. Now, what we're going to see is after Peter and John come and they go back, they tell the disciples who don't believe them, and the disciples all go to their homes. And I think that one way to put this together is when the, these women go back to tell the disciples, they're not all in one place anymore. They're, they're scattered, so they've got to go find them. And so that takes a little time, which helps us to understand why here it's just the two women and Luke talks about Mary Magdalene is with them, and so that gives the time for Mary Magdalene to make her trip back to the grave, come back, and rejoin them, and then they tell all of the disciples. But their response, the disciples' response, is they don't believe it. They say, you're just telling nonsense tales. And this is in Luke 24, 10, and 11. And there we read, it was Mary Magdalene. See, you have them all together now, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with him, who told these things to the apostles, and their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. Now, the Greek word that is used here for idle tales is a word that was used um, by, uh, by in medical, in medical uh, writings in Greece, and Luke was a doctor, and so he very well is using this word, and it referred to someone who was having hallucination, someone who was in hysterics. And so that could very well be why he's using this particular word. In the 15th stage, at this point, Luke tells us that Peter ran to the tomb. So that sort of fixes it for us that this is where John uh, 20 verse, verse 4 comes into play. At this point, Peter runs to the tomb. He doesn't tell us about John in, in Luke. But in John's gospel, John has the whole story of the order and the focus of what what happened. Uh, Peter, When Peter heard Mary Magdalene's initial report of the empty tomb, uh, he ju- just took off right away. Uh, she didn't have the right explanation at that point. So in point 16, John and Peter ran to the tomb. John arrived first. And then Peter just blows past him and goes right in the door and, and sees it, and then John will follow him in, uh, into the tomb, and they're looking. But what's interesting in John 25 through 7, or actually 5 through 8, we have three different words for seeing, which are interesting. 
when when John get there, he stooped down and looked in. That's blepo. He just glanced in. It was enough to tell him there wasn't a body there. Saw the linen clothes, but he didn't go in. Then Peter runs past him in verse 6 and goes in the tomb, and he saw, saw, and this is the word theoreo, which means to look intently at something. He's just standing there looking and looking. So John just glances. Peter's really looking at it. And then he tells us what he sees, the handkerchief that's been around the head. This was just a linen cloth that was tied over the head. You'll get these emails where people say, oh, this word is a word for a napkin. And at the end of a meal, if you were leaving and you were coming back, you'd fold up the napkin and put it there. That's just garbage. Don't don't buy that. I've checked with several archaeologists like Randy Price and others, and this is just just stuff that, that ignorant Christians believe in. So... But Peter looks at it. He sees the grave clothes lying there, and they're, they're, they look folded. They just collapsed because the body disappeared. And then John comes in, and it says, John uh, went in also, and he saw. And it's a different word. It's horao. It means he looks and he understands. It's not just that he... It's like when you, somebody's trying to explain something difficult to you, and finally you say, ah, oh, I see. You know, you got it. You understand it. That's what's happened. John looks at it. He understands and he believes. He's the first one that stated that he believes that the resurrection has taken place. Then we come to the 17th event. John appears to suggest that they returned and told the disciples, but then the disciples did not understand the resurrection, and they go to their homes. This is in John 20, verses 9 and 10. Then the disciples went away and went to their own homes. They're not believing it yet. Mary, though, now we get back to Mary. Remember the last time we saw her, she had told John and Peter. They took off running, and she's on her way back to the tomb. Now she arrives in the tomb. This is John 20, verse 11 and 13. Mary, who is still ignorant of the situation, returns to the tomb weeping, and she sees the two angels. And... One's at the head and the other's at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said, because, you know, you you can just hear her crying. Because they've taken our Lord's body. We don't know where it is. And at that point, Jesus appears to her. Wow. What must that have been like? Jesus appears to her, but she doesn't know it. She just thinks he's a gardener. Eyes are filled with tears. He's probably cloaked his identity a little bit. And, and she turns around and sees him and doesn't know that it's Jesus and says, Woman, why are you weeping? And thinking he's the gardener, she says, Well, somebody's carried his body away. If you did it, tell us what you did with it, and I'll take him away. And then Jesus said to her, Mary, he just called her name, and instantly she knew who he was. And she says, Rabboni, that is my teacher. And she knows that it's the Lord. Now, why is all this important? I think we have to know, first of all, what happened, what took place, what transpired that that day. I'm trying to find an earlier slide. No. There we go. We have to know what happened. 
We have these witnesses. It's incredible the number of witnesses. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.3, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the core of the Christian message. And that he was seen by, listen, these are not all given in in the Gospels. He was seen by Cephas. That's the Aramaic for Peter. Then by the twelve. After that, he was the twelve, or they still called him the twelve, even though Judas isn't part of, of the twelve anymore. They're still called the twelve, but it's only the eleven. Then after that, Paul says he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present. In other words, you can go talk to them, but some of them have died. And then he says, after that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. There's a difference between this use of apostle and the technical use, okay, which refers to only only the 11 plus Paul. And then last of all, Paul says, he was seen by me also. So there are these witnesses. You have Mary Magdalene is a witness. The two women are a witness, and there are probably more women. The witnesses of the guards, how were they witnesses? They, in, in Matthew 28, 11, 15, they had to go back and tell uh, the, the chief priests and the Sadducees and the Romans that the tomb was empty. So they're witnesses to the empty tomb. Um, Jesus appeared to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Mark sixteen twelve to 13. He appears to Peter in Luke twenty four thirty three to 35. He appears to 10, 10 of the disciples. So that's what Paul refers to in terms of the 11. He later uh, appeared to all of the 11. He appeared to the 500. He appeared to James. Lots of witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This isn't a myth that is made up. That is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 13, and 14, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is empty. Now, where he goes with that is if Christ has been risen from the dead, then we are new creatures in Christ and we are not bought but we are bought with a price, and we are not our own. We belong to God. There is an implied conclusion here that if Christ is risen from the dead, then that changes our whole life, and we are now to live for him and not for ourselves. And that's the challenge that Matthew will come to. We're not long from till the end of Matthew. It may take us a month to finish it, but we're not long. The last thing that Jesus says is to the disciples and through them to us that we are make, to make disciples, not just believers, but to challenge people to be a true student and disciple of Jesus Christ. And that means to develop a passion to know the word, to understand the word, to apply the word in all of its dimensions so that we can grow to be mature believers and truly be useful to the Lord and to serve him with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to focus upon these great truths, to come to understand the events that occurred that day, for they are important. They have been recorded for us. They reveal to us the witnesses who saw the empty tomb, who saw the empty grave clothes, who saw uh, <coughs> the the the, the the angels that were there, 
And then they saw the risen Lord. They were eyewitnesses of those events. They knew it. It is a historic fact. It wasn't something that happened internally. It wasn't some mystical vision. It wasn't some sort of uh, psychological trauma-induced mental event. It was a flesh flesh and bone risen Lord Jesus Christ who had conquered death for us. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here or anyone listening who has never trusted in Christ as Savior, that they would take this opportunity to do so, to make it clear in their own thinking that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be. He's the Son of God. He died on the cross for our sins, and he rose from the dead the third day. And as a result of that, we can have eternal life by simply believing in him. Father, we pray that you would drive that message home to any unbelievers listening and to any believers that because of this we are, we have new life in Christ and we are to live for him. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Closing hymn. Our closing hymn is number 224, All Who Serve Our God and King. Number 224, please stand.